Marge and Beaujolais podcast. Nick's calling it the second because, oh wait, this is our second. Yes, we just recorded one of these for about an hour and uh, <laughs> I'm having some audio issues with our new cool uh, podcasting equipment. We're really good at podcasting. We did an entire 45 minutes of nothing apparently. We're good at talking. We're not good at recording it. <laughs> So anyway, uh, like I said, we're here again to talk a little bit about David Large and Beaujolais. Uh, this is our first official podcast. Holly did do one last week that a few of you might have checked out on Orange Wine. Uh, but now we're set up. We have a studio, which is our dining room table. And uh, we're ready to kind of get, get to the big leagues here. I thought my podcast was fine, but clearly Nick it was. did not. It was really good, but we're trying to kind of make this a little bit better and sound a little bit better now. And we also want to hear me, or I want to hear me. <laughs> you guys can tell us what you want to hear so we are going to start in the Beaujolais that's where we're going today and uh, the way that we're going to format this is we're going to talk a bit about the Beaujolais generally a bit about natural winemaking in the Beaujolais then we're going to talk a bit about David Large himself his vines his winery um, and ultimately the wines that we are bringing in from him exactly so Beaujolais is, as many of you probably already know, a region in France that's just south of Burgundy. And the reason that we're starting here is because we were actually just there about uh, probably about a month ago at this point, uh, visiting David Large, kind of tasting his wines and checking out the vineyard. So we kind of wanted to start while that uh, memory was still fresh. So the history of the Beaujolais is a really interesting one. Um, it is right south of Burgundy, and depending on who you're talking to, some people consider it a part of Burgundy itself. Um, but they produce very different grapes, well, half very different grapes than Burgundy. So there's two designated grapes uh, within the Beaujolais. The first is Gamay, and the second is Chardonnay. So obviously in Burgundy, they make Chardonnay um, and Pinot Noir as the two main grapes, and uh the story goes that a long time ago, a king of France basically said that he was done with Gamay, did not want any more, and uh, everyone said, okay, and they uprooted it and planted new things, but the good farmers of Beaujolais said, we don't really care what you think, and kept it. And some current farmers in Beaujolais are also saying, we don't really care what you think, and growing, or thinking about growing some really funky grapes, like, uh, what is David thinking about <laughs> he doing? He wants to plant Gewürztraminer. He has no idea if it'll do well or not, but that's his next... Uh, no, it's not Gewurz. I think it is. No, it was something else. Anyways, um, so the region of Beaujolais, that's kind of, you know, it's shtick. And then to give you an idea of what it's like compared to the rest of France, so um, compared to the Burgundians, these are really the just average farmer <laughs> wine growers, not pretentious at all. Um, so if you consider the Bordelais people of Bordeaux as the most hoity-toity, uh, and then the Burgundians, you know, under them, then that gives you a bit of an idea of the look and feel of uh, the people that are making wine in Beaujolais. Exactly. Sorry, I'm really distracted right now looking up, trying to figure out exactly which grape that was that he's growing. I don't think it was Gewurz. It was one of those like you know Riesling or one of those ones that has two names and I don't remember which one it was oh no it was Gruner Veltliner Gruner that's it it was Gruner Veltliner now I remember you you did a good job describing it anyway <laughs> 
All right, so that's a bit about the Beaujolais um, and its history. Now to talk about the wines itself. Well, so, let's talk a little bit about uh, the the region and kind of what it's like, and give pic- people a picture of like you know what it actually looks like. So there are several different classifications of wines within the Beaujolais. Um, and if you are really interested in learning a lot more about the Beaujolais, there's a great podcast from Guildsome that's about an hour long that gives a lot more history than we're going to give. Um, so check that one out as well. But um, so there's basically Cruz, and Cruz is like, you know, the highest level, the most creme de la creme of the wines. And those are, I have them right in front of me, so I'm going to try to uh, pronounce these right now in the best French that I can. <clears throat> Saint Amour. Julianas, 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 uh, Chenas, Moulin Avant, Fleury, uh, Cheruble, Cheruble, I think, uh, Mer- Morgon, Renier, Br- Br- I, I really Bruy, Bruy, <laughs> uh, and Cote de Bruy. So that's Julianas, Chenas, Moulin Avant, Fleury, Cheruble, Morgon, Reni. Bruy, Cote de Bruy. Pretty good. Um, so those are the ten, the ten crews that make up the uh, the Beaujolais region, and each one of those crews uh, exists because you know they have been deemed to have really specific uh, kind of terroir-driven characteristics, right? So either the soil is really distinct, um, the elevation is very distinct. Maybe it's like a southwest-facing slope that isn't super common that you know gives it. Uh, the grapes, a certain juiciness or whatever it is, um, they've uh, kind of came together and decided that, you know, these 10 crews are special. They're special regions here. And uh, as such, we're going to designate them as such. So that's the first level. And then below that, they have Beaujolais Village. And Village basically just means that, hey, I'm not a crew. I'm also not just an average Beaujolais. I am a delicious in-between that gets a little bit more attention. Um, and then below that, they have regular Beaujolais. And if you see a wine that's made in the Beaujolais but doesn't have a Beaujolais designation, that is typically because it's either grown outside of a region considered that or they used a different grape. Or blend or anything would a blend. Yeah, a blend would also disqualify. It all depends, you know, region by region what their laws are, but that's typically the way that it works. And then Beaujolais has a really fun extra level that... Um, I don't believe exists or did not used to exist in other parts of France, which is called Beaujolais Nouveau. I think they're starting to get into it more now, but it was basically popularized by Beaujolais. I think it's been a long time that they've been doing it, but it basically went big in Japan, as many things do, um, at the end of the 90s. This podcast is huge in Japan. (laughs) Yes, huge in Japan. Um, but it really, it really, that's really what happened. So they make this wine that is basically the first release of the new vintage. So before they spend a lot of time letting it age or doing, you know, anything like that would affect the way that it is flavored or help it age longer, they literally just put it in a vessel, maybe rack it once or twice, and they bottle it up and send it to you. In the U.S., it typically arrives right before the beginning of Thanksgiving. I say typically because it doesn't always. <laughs> Ours will not be. Um, and it is really perfect for drinking at the beginning of fall because it goes very well with uh, fall food, basically. Things like pumpkin and um, raviolis. and I don't know. Pumpkin ravioli is my favorite fall thing, so it's the first Turkey. one I think of. Turkey. Oh, yeah. It's so good for Thanksgiving. Um, 
so that's what Beaujolais Village is and or sorry no that's what Beaujolais Nouveau is so those are the three or four different types of designations that you can find within the Beaujolais. Exactly. And uh, one quick note before we move on, just to kind of describe the region to you, uh, it's really hilly. Uh, there's kind of farmland everywhere. Like the entire thing is farmland and hills and goats and cows and whatever. And, uh, you know, it really feels like you're in like Tuscany or something like that, um, which was super surprising and super nice for us uh, when we got there last month. Yeah, it doesn't look like much when you're driving down the highway, but once you turn off onto those smaller streets, it gets incredibly bucolic and... We'll drop some pictures in the blog and you can see uh, exactly what we're talking about. So that's our very brief overview of the Beaujolais in general. A few notes on natural winemaking in the Beaujolais before we move specifically on to David. Um, Natural winemaking is very popular in the Beaujolais. There are a lot of famous names of people that are making it there. Um, but it should be noted that they are not people that are in David's region, David's small part of the Beaujolais. He's the only one, and uh, the rest of the people around there are not too happy about what he's doing, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, so we were really excited to meet David kind of before we had even, you know, really t- contacted him, just because we saw, uh, I guess, his online presence, you would say, you know, his wine labels presence. He's Definitely someone that seems to be doing something really different than you would uh, typically associate with the Beaujolais, and that was really interesting to us at first. So if you've gone online, you may have seen um, some of David's videos. He made a recent rap video about one of, no, just about generally his wine, and he's very into hip-hop, and he's also very into um, movies. I think you can see it on his Facebook if you're interested. Just It's at David Large Vigneron. Yes. Specifically, um, movies that are horror. There's one in particular, I can't think of the name, but it's a French film group that he named one of his um, wines after. And he basically is taking movies and like rap and turning them into his labels, into his philosophy. Each wine bottle that he has has a poem or i guess it could be wrapped as well on the side of it yeah the way he kind of looks at it and the way he approaches you know what he names his wine how he makes his wine is that you know each one has its own distinct story to tell um kind of like you know a comic or a movie or a song or whatever and uh, that's reflected quite a bit in his labels his poetry you know and even the wines themselves so a bit about his background um david went to school in I believe Bordeaux, or maybe it was Burgundy. He went to winemaking school uh, from a young age, and his parents were winemakers as well as his grandparents. Uh, and even before that, I believe it was great-great-grandparents were actually the horse trainers for uh, the horses that would plow the vines. So he's been very rooted throughout all of his generations in winemaking, specifically in the Beaujolais. Exactly. And uh, he just recently started making wines kind of under his own label as his father uh, kind of took a step back from the winemaking process and uh, David kind of stepped in. And as we see from many of our producers, uh, Nibiru is like this. Uh, I think Mamaruta as well, kind of. Uh, obviously, David, uh, they get vines that are inherited that were probably made under conventional winemaking and then decide to convert them to natural winemaking. 
So he makes two different types of wine, and we'll talk about this um, a bit more when we go into each of the wines that we're bringing in. But for some of his wines, he is the grower and the vigneron, the person that is with the wine from start to finish on the vine. For some of his other wines, um, because he wants to have such a variety in what he's making, he is not the actual wine or grape grower. Um, and so he calls, those are basically his negociant uh wines that's a really popular tradition in france that used to be and well basically everything from you know giant bulk wines you buy wines you press them you make rosé to provence and it's from all over provence and there's you know not one specific uh vineyard on it but it also has been you know there's a a few different fancy labels or not fancy a few different brands basically that will make every single wine from a regular like Louis Jadot will make a Beaujolais all the way up to an Hermitage. Maybe not an Hermitage, but something right below Hermitage. Um, so that's what the Negociant ones are. So he picks specific places that are growing grapes the way that he believes they should be grown, and then he makes the wine himself. Yeah, so we actually, even though these uh, grapes are purchased, all of the wines that we're going to be bringing in are still uh, going to qualify as natural for us. So don't worry about that. So those are the two different types of wines that he makes. Um, and now we can talk a little bit about uh, the grapes that he's using. So he is really a study on Gamay and all of the ways that Gamay can be made. And, and that's one of the reasons used. that, sorry to interrupt there, that's one of the reasons that what we were so interested in working with David. Um, you know, when you look at his lineup, it's Gamay, basically. It's one Chardonnay and a whole load of gamay um but you know when you taste the wines you can really feel the difference in uh you know how they're made uh in terms of like carbonic semi-carbonic etc you can get a real sense for like the terroir right so moulin avant was grown in this really cool pink granite um that has a very distinct flavor profile and they're all super different right and it ranges from light entry level to very austere serious wines and that's one of the reasons that we're so excited to be representing uh, david in the united states so when we went to go visit him we showed up and i believe the winery is basically uh under his parents house so we went there and we we went (laughs) so we went there and we first did a tour of um the winery and he has a lot of concrete as you can imagine with the amount of carbonic maceration and uh, natural wine making that they're doing i don't believe he actually had any oak it was basically all fiberglass and concrete throughout and a couple different crazy vessels that i'd never even heard of he had um one egg and then he had this other bowling ball looking fiberglass <laughs> turny that's, that's the official name the for bowling it. ball turny werny fiberglass winemaker that's what i'm going to be calling it patent pending um and that's basically the two different types of vessels that he's using so you can assume uh, all of his wines that they're going to have a very um clean flavor that is not affected by any of anything in the vessel because there's really no wood exactly and he also really kind of lets his personality shine in the cellar as well. You know, posters, movie quotes, that kind of thing. It's kind of dark and like noir-esque, I guess I would say. Um, so it's a very cool, very cool tasting experience. So after we did that, we um, 
ended up actually going out to uh, a couple of his plots, which we were lucky to do just because it was absolutely downpouring. Um, poor Norman the wine dog got absolutely soaked. And I did too. <laughs> and Nick did too, taking him from one part of the uh, winery to the other. And uh, we were able to drive up to two different plots, one for his Chardonnay and the other that is his um, grandfather's oldest plot and the steepest one. Yeah, and that one is where uh, Le Grand Terrier is made. And it's a very cool, south-facing, really, really steep aspect slope um, that obviously, as Holly mentioned, they've kind of had in their family for generations. Um, There's a bit of a history in terms of uh, crew designation versus not crew designation with that one as well, right? Yeah, so there's an interesting story there. Um, So there's a lot of vintners in this region, and the biggest one is actually like a giant castle if you're near David's home and you look to the left, you can see an enormous castle that actually makes a lot of Beaujolais Village level wines. And this slope that um, has this crazy aspect on it um, is a lot of granite and a lot of limestone. So a few years ago, I don't know exactly when, they came and asked the vintners that had plots here if uh, they wanted it to be tested for another potential crew. And obviously David Large and his family thought that would be pretty dope but um the largest one said you know i don't really think that we want to do that we're really more beaujolais village winemakers it seems like too much of a hassle no thanks so it's been a little bit funny womp womp for david and honestly womp womp for people that are buying this wine not just because you know it's delicious and honestly should probably cost more than it is but actually because when you hear of beaujolais village a certain flavor profile comes to your mind and david was telling us a story about how someone at a restaurant ordered this beaujolais village expecting a you know lighter but still um having a bit of complexity beaujolais wine and this wine's actually incredibly austere it's a lot more like one of the morgon or other you know austere crews that exists in beaujolais so they you know are not getting the wine experience that they're expecting because it really is you know a completely delicious wine but not what you're expecting from that type of label so we're telling you now this wine is austere and absolutely delicious and a great expression of tannin in uh gamay so let's go ahead and talk about some of the wines that we're bringing in now. Uh, we'll start with the white, which we tasted first, uh, which is the... Dos Argente. Dos, Dos Argente, exactly. Um, it's 100% Chardonnay. Uh, no oak on it at all, which is you know a pretty interesting way to do it because people that are used to Chardonnay, especially in the United States often are getting them from places like California, you know, wine-growing regions that do typically use quite a bit of oak. And uh, not using the oak really allows the flavor of the grape to uh, to kind of come through. Yeah, I will say that I there's he didn't actually filter this wine. They did two versions of it, and the one that they thought had the better mouthfeel, but rounder, um, was the one that was unfiltered, which means that it's had significant lees contact. So there is a bit of creaminess to it, but it's not having any flavors that you would expect that would be imparted from oak on it yeah and that's actually a really good note on the filtration uh people be warned this wine does have sediment a lot of sediment yeah (laughs) and just quick little training on um decanting because that's what i would recommend with this wine if you've been storing it on its side i would first stand it up put it in your fridge let all the sediment settle on the bottom make sure it's um super fresh and uh 
what's it called you put it in the fridge so it gets cold there we go and then once it's cold and you see all the sediment settle at the bottom throw it in a decanter and what you want to do is you basically just want to fill it up until you start to see the sediment creeping towards the uh, neck of the bottle just stop there i know there's still a little bit of wine at the bottom and if you really want it you can have it with the sediment it's not a terrible thing it's not bad for you but the easiest way to do it is just to stop there you won't be drinking sediment with it and you'll be able to have all of the delicious goodness that is uh, this unfiltered chardonnay exactly and then after that we moved on to uh maasai 2019 which is a uh... David's Beaujolais Nouveau. And this one's really cool, uh, especially our tasting experience with it, because it wasn't quite ready yet, uh, as much as we wanted it to be, because we wanted to get this shipment in earlier. Um, you know, we were going to wait, and David was going to wait as well. So to taste this one, we actually went up to the uh, fiberglass tank where it was being stored and uh, tried it right out of the barrel. And it definitely has all the qualities that you would expect in a Beaujolais Nouveau. Uh, the Beaujolais Nouveaus are all carbonic maceration, like to the T, what you expect out of it. Lots of bubble gum, lots of banana, very fresh, barely any tannin, not as much skin contact as you'll see with some of the other Beaujolais, or sorry, of the other Gamays that he's making. Um, incredibly just fresh, clean, yummy, simple uh, Gamay expression. Exactly. And uh, while you mentioned that, Holly, we should probably talk a little bit about carbonic maceration and what it is. Uh, so it's basically if you leave the grape whole, uh, it'll the juice uh, inside the grape will start to ferment, at which point it'll burst. Um, so it's kind of like the, the grape is fermenting inside itself, you know, whereas you typically might uh, crush the grape and allow the juices to kind of like, I guess, freely ferment. Um, carbonic is basically taking the little berry, uh, the grape berry, and fermenting inside of itself, at which point it explodes. It goes, I feel funny. Wah! <laughs> yes, And exactly. then that's how it ferments from the inside out versus exactly. all of the juice on its own. And they do a ton of carbonic. Pretty much all of these are carbonic or semi-carbonic, so just something to be aware of. You know, it typically gives you, like, banana, bubblegum flavors, like a freshness, acidity, that kind of thing. Very fruity. It imparts a lot of fruit in yep. the wine. Exactly. So moving up from the Beaujolais Nouveau, uh, the Beaujolais that is not a Beaujolais village that we're bringing in is called Purana. This is one of David's négociant uh, wines, which means that he purchased the grapes from someone that's producing them organically. He liked the plot. He liked the way that they were made. And he turned it into an incredibly fresh, um, you know, not quite as simple as the Beaujolais Nouveau. Um, it has a little bit more complexity. Um than that and it's basically just like if you're what you expect from a regular Beaujolais that's what you're getting with Piranha um, really nice and lovely structure but um, not like a giant finish it's got a really yummy like kind of strong fruitiness to it and uh, barely any tannin uh, this was one of my favorites this one and the Moulin Avant were the two that I loved the most um, and it's just you know like when you expect a Beaujolais that's gone through carbonic, that's a Beaujolais regular designation, this is the one. Exactly. Really, really good wine. Excited to bring it in. I think they're actually, this one's actually already in New York. So for our New York fans, uh, you could probably check it out there too. Um, after that, we'll just kind of highlight a couple of the interesting ones here. I think Le Grand Terrier is definitely worth talking about. Obviously, we already touched on kind of the plot and the history, um, but it's one of our favorites just because of how distinct it was. Uh, full carbonic in a fiberglass egg. Um, for me, I get a lot of kind of spice, red fruit, like 
cherry pit oddly enough definitely more austere like this is the tannic harder expression of all the wines uh, that david has this is the one that's like the most tannic and the most heavy yeah which is surprising because as we mentioned it is a village uh beaujolais but it still kind of has all of that uh kind of funny stuff that you might expect in a crew and then there are two crews that we're going to bring in from um, David. One is Moulin Avant and the other is Cote de Brie. They're both uh, vignerons, so he uh, owns the plot, makes the grapes, uh, and does the wine from start to finish. And they're both incredible expressions of um, where they're from. I would say that the Cote de Brie is exactly what you would expect from a Cote de Brie, but the Moulin Avant is more uh, like a little bit lighter than what you would normally expect from a Moulin Avant. So if you've drank a lot of Beaujolais, um, the Moulin Avant drinks a bit more, like I would say a little bit heavier than a Fleury, but it drinks like a bit lighter than what you would expect from like the Moulin Avant style. So we're bringing in quite a few different wines from David. And we have everything coming in from uh, his one non-Gamay wine to a Nouveau, to a regular Beaujolais, to two Village, and two Crew. So that's seven wines. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, So it was really exciting to be able to have this entire range from him where we're able to see everything from the most basic version of carbonic maceration all the way up to, uh, you know, the Crew creme de la creme example of... And we're really excited to have his wines and we can't wait for you to try them. You'll get some sort of mix of them, uh, depending on what type of wine club you're in. And um, I think one of them we may actually only release to the wine club. We're still trying to figure out what that looks like now, but we're excited to get everything up and for you guys to check them out hopefully soon. I won't say when because Nick always gets mad at me. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.